So whatever might have come my way, I still don't let it stop me. They're going to continue to hear from me and hear from me and hear from me. I think people will start to recognize that all the social issues, this nasty rhetoric surrounding all of these different intersections and these marginalized groups, it's all, you know, mirrors, smoke and mirrors. The organizer of the drag event there told me he got a lot of pushback because of their presence, because, you know, conservatives don't like the people dressed in black, in masks, being there. If you believe it, you can achieve it. And I'm trying to be the next Martha Stewart or Paula Dean, but right here in the heart of Baltimore City. We were up at dawn and outside working, picking whatever we were growing at the time. You come home from school, you went out in the field and you worked because it was necessary. On this week's show, April Lott, Vice President of the South Carolina AFL-CIO and President of AFGE Local 3627, joins the America's Workforce Union podcast. Lott talks about the uphill battle she faces, not just from the anti-labor rhetoric, but also as a black female in a union in South Carolina, the state with the lowest labor density. Despite the negatives, Lott says she's excited to work with a younger generation that wants to join a union. And with new industries moving into South Carolina, Lott is positive their attempts to increase union membership will be successful. In the latest episode of Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers, Vice President of Human Affairs Kevin Mapp and Pride at Work co-president Brittany Murray talk about uniting workers across race, class, and gender to build a labor coalition that lasts. Then, as reactionary politics heat up in Texas, armed community and left groups have begun confronting a coalition of neo-Nazis, white supremacists, Proud Boys, and Christian fascist groups who have been trying to intimidate drag show and other LGBTQT groups and events across the state. On the Green and Red podcast, Scott talks with Truthout's Candace Byrne about her latest article, Armed Community Groups Are Defending Texas Drag Queens from Christian Fascists, and her coverage of these protests and confrontations across the state. Valerie Watson Johnson is better known as the Cake Lady. You'll hear more from the Lunch with Labor show. In the latest episode of Rework, Antoinette Yvonne de Campo Lechtenberg paints a picture of growing up in a rural farming community in the 1960s and 70s as the daughter of a Filipino immigrant from the Manong generation. The Tractor Princess draws on excerpts from an oral history interview that's part of a community archive and research initiative called Watsonville is in the Heart, which highlights the stories of Filipino families from the greater Pajaro Valley region in California. That's all coming up on this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. If you like what you hear, please take a moment to subscribe and share the show. It's what we call Sonic Solidarity. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. Welcome. 
to the America's Workforce Radio Podcast, the flagship production of the American Workers Radio and Podcast Network, where organized labor and its never-ending fight to protect the rights of the American worker come first. Now, presented by LIUNA, Laborers International Union of North America, here's your host, Ed Flash Ferens. Let's go to South Carolina right now, and joining us on our live line is April Lott. April is a vice president of the South Carolina AFL-CIO. She was elected to that position in 2019, then re-elected two years later. She's also a president, president of AFGE Local 3627. And as I indicated, March is Women's History Month, so we're trying to bring as many female labor leaders to the show to talk about their rise to what they do in their union. And April is certainly one of those people. April Lott, welcome to America's Workforce. How are we doing today, sister? I'm doing well, doing well, my brother. How are you doing today? Good, good, good. So glad that you could join us here today. And I'll tell you, I talk a whole lot about South Carolina, and unfortunately (laughs) the news isn't very good because of the low union density. You have the distinction of having the lowest union density in the entire country. The the latest figures that came out was, uh, I believe, 1.7%. You contrast that with Hawaii, you're looking at like over 20%. I want to get into that a little bit later in the show. But right now, I want to talk about April Lot. How did you get involved? Let's start right there. Do you come from a union family? Talk to me about that part of your life, April. Actually, no, um, I I don't. Uh, My father, you know, worked in in, uh, manufacturing, um, but it was not a unionized job. My mother was a a nurse at one of the major hospitals in South Carolina Medical University for over 40 years. But no, neither one of them in in my life, my young adult life, never said anything about labor or unions or anything. Um, I am actually a federal government employee, 32 years with the federal government, and that was my introduction to to unions. Um, I actually started off as the health and safety rep um, and then went to chief steward, then went to executive vice president of the local, and then president of the local, and then I got involved with the South Carolina AFL-CIO. I am also president of the Charleston Central Labor Council. So uh, just over my career as a federal employee helping the uh, workers uh, within my organization, I began to broaden out and said, you know, it's more than just my little box, my little organization. I, I wanted to do something for my state. I wanted to be a voice for what was going on in my state. I am a South Carolina native, born and raised uh, in Charleston, never left, you know, and and this is home uh, for 50, soon to be 51 years. April, you know, with this being Women's History Month, the the, uh, month of March, we're focusing on people like yourself, and we want to talk how talk about how they rose up the union ladder. You think about this. You know, you've heard that like, oh, it's a man's world. It's a man's world. Things have changed over the years, obviously, but there's still some challenges for women and people of color. And you fit into both of those categories. Can you kind of reflect on your time when you uh, when you got involved in the workforce? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, um, you know, Starting with the federal government at the tender age of of 
Well, I was 19. Um, I've been with uh, this uh, with Social Security since I was 21. Um, you know, things were a lot different, you know, back then. And our union leaders at that time, uh, we had some female union leaders. We had a few African-American union leaders, but not many. Um, but I always felt uh, that we had we were inclusive. Um, there was always diversity, um, and I've seen that change throughout the years. Now, being in South Carolina, yes, there there have been been challenges with my leadership. You know, um, not always respected or shown the respect um, that uh, a man w- would have been shown, um, mm-hmm. and definitely there have been situations where um, I felt personally that that my race. Uh, was the cause of of maybe some disagreements or not receiving full participation from some. But I didn't let it stop me because whether I'm white, black, male or female, um, it is all about the workers. And it's about what I'm there to fight for. It's what I'm there to advocate for. So whatever might have come my way, I still don't let it stop me. They're going to continue to hear from me and hear from me and hear from me. They're going to see me. They're going to see me be active. They're going to see me encourage them to be active. And it's going to be on them to do what is right and to do the best for the employees. All right, April, this is great. I appreciate the time that you spent with us. Did I leave anything out? Is there anything you would like to say to our to our nationally podcast audience here? Just keep up the fight, my brothers and sisters. Don't do not get weary in well doing. We we are going to win this. There you go. April Lott, Vice President, South Carolina AFL CIO, President of AFGE Local thirty six twenty seven. You take care. Stay safe, stay strong, and more importantly, stay in touch with us. You got a friend here in America's workforce, okay? Yes, sir. Thank you. Welcome to Solidarity Works, a podcast from the United Steelworkers Union. We're here to have conversations and start conversations about the past, present, and future of the labor movement, as well as talk about some of the work the union is doing with USW activists leading the way. Make sure to follow the United Steelworkers Union on Twitter, at Steelworkers. And subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming service, like Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and more. I'm Chelsea Engel, proud member of the United Steelworkers. And welcome again to Solidarity Works. Co-president of Pride at Work, Brittany Murray, agrees that labor needs to embrace workers who have historically been marginalized. It's why she joined a slate of labor activists focused on the future, who ran for and won their positions on the Pride at Work National Executive Board in the summer of 2022. Also a member of USW Local 3657, Brittany is the first Black woman to serve as Pride at Work co-president. And she recognizes the significance of this first. I don't erase the fact that um, it is something historical that has happened and it kind of showcases a shift in 
uh, intersectionality and also in the way uh, organizations are choosing and intentionally uplifting uh, certain intersections to be in these positions of leadership because they recognize that we have uh, a unique perspective, that we have unique backgrounds, um, that we've essentially experienced some things. So the, the compassion aspect and the ability to be malleable um, and the ability to have certain qualities of leadership are, are a little bit different. As a Black queer woman, Brittany also knows how the LGBTQ movement has often been usurped by white activists, which is part of why she's taken on this leadership position. It's also why she advocates for people like herself to tell their stories and take up space when and where they can. We know that the erasure is fraught um, and it exists within all of these different uh, systems in all of these different institutions, like the erasure of like Black people, um, Hispanic people, BIPOC people in general, is widespread. So, um, what it essentially comes down to is um, access, and who's really telling the stories. And historically, the stories have been told, um, you know, from a predominantly white lens. So, those are the people that get discussed. Um, you know, even this month in Black History Month. Uh, the Civil and Human Rights Department is doing like an entire presentation on Black workers of America, but we're not just touching on, you know, the Bayard Rustins and the Frederick Douglasses, like we're touching on uh, these Black organizers that existed, some even prior to the Civil War. Um, and these are not people or uh, entities that ever get talked about, even in labor. Because when you start telling the stories and the truth and the facts actually come out, it compromises some things for some people. People are underneath the guise that it takes something away from them. It doesn't take anything away. If anything, the history just teaches us how to be better and how to avoid missteps and how to be better organizers and how to do this work in a way that uh, creates legitimate solidarity. On the subject of intersectionality, Brittany says it is vital for activists and organizers to use it as a lens in all of their work to not only build compassion, but to help carve a path forward that works for everyone. If we're going to be true organizers, if we're gonna be true advocates, if we're gonna be, you know, frankly, good people, we should work to make all of this as equitable as possible. And when you understand intersections, you can do that because you start having compassion for different people's issues based on their intersections, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you recognize that somebody is Hispanic and, Black and, white and. Brittany believes history has a lot to say about this. What people like King and Bayard and A. Philip Randolph understood was, yeah, there are some elephants in the room that we have to deal with first. And in Bayard's case, it was definitely, you know, his Blackness and his queerness. But if we could get past the social divisions that, frankly, the powers that be, the, the politicians, you know, the, the wealthy, these people with these very specific special interests to keep us in our place <laughs> and from a class aspect. And if we if we could sit down with all of our American workers and have this kind of a conversation, I, I think people would start to recognize that all the social issues the ways that people parrot this rhetoric, this nasty rhetoric surrounding all of these different intersections and these marginalized groups, these minority groups, 
it's all, you know, mirrors, smoke and mirrors. If you aren't already, consider becoming an active member of your local union's Civil and Human Rights Committee and joining a constituency group of the AFL-CIO, like the A. Philip Randolph Institute or Pride at Work. Because we all do better when we all do better. Until next time, take care and stay safe, siblings. Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red Podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California today. Bob is off on assignment, and so it's just me today. Uh, I am joined by Candace Burned, who is a uh, editor and senior reporter at Truthout about her recent piece, Armed Community Groups Are Defending Texas Drag Queens from Christian Fascists. Uh, Candace, welcome back to the Green and Red podcast. Hi, Scott. Yeah, thanks so much for having me back. And uh, uh, talking about your new piece, um, you know, our home state is definitely afflicted with hate uh, and and long, long time uh, hate. And it's been seems like it's been particularly like sort of like public and visible. And it's part of this national strategy. Um, maybe we could start with a little bit of a background on the rise of why right-wing hate groups are targeting these communities and these events nationally, and then we can kind of then uh, narrow down into Texas. Yeah, um, I think that we've been seeing a rash of targeting of of drag events in particular uh, around, you know, ever since the, the sort of start of this whole grooming narrative really got going. So in Texas, you know, what that has looked like is a particular coalition formed by a UNT alumna uh, named Kelly Neidert. Um, University of North Texas, right? Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, University of North Texas, uh, my alma mater. Um, so Neidert earned some notoriety on campus uh, just through her activities with the Young Conservatives um, chapter that she was running there, basically held some very controversial events, uh, invited a man named Jeff Younger onto campus, um, who is this disgruntled father figure who lost custody of his child um, and his is misgendering his child. His child is trans. And so, you know, he's got invited on Fox News. He's been speaking publicly. And that uh, event was protested heavily by students on campus. Um, and there was a big, big counter protest. It became a big controversy. And anyways, NIDERT has sort of capitalized on a lot of that um, infamy. Uh, she got really popular in, you know, the, the right-wing media sphere uh, and has kind of been trying to use the, the momentum she gained there and put it into this project. Um, it's supposedly a nonprofit called Protect Texas Kids, right? Uh, although you can't find any records on the nonprofit if you try to search for its 990 or its IRS form, you can't find anything on it. It's basically been spearheading the charge to target drag shows throughout Texas. And that's what I've been documenting for the past 
several months now. Uh, she's, you know, PTK has targeted shows from Katy, Texas to Dallas to San Antonio, really all over the state. Um, and there's been this really far right coalition that has formed around PTK. And that far right coalition includes very explicitly fascist groups. We're talking about groups like the Aryan Freedom Network, American Nationalist In Initiative, and um, a group called the New Columbia Movement. Um, so explicitly fascist groups forming around PTK, um, joining her, you know, at protests. Yeah. Uh, talking about the Elk Fork uh, John Brown Gun Club, they're uh, just maybe give the audience a little background on them. They're based in Dallas, I believe. Right? Yeah, Dallas, the, Fort Worth. the Dallas Denton area. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, they basically started making the national. So uh, the, this really got touched off after a, uh, a drag brunch event in Roanoke, Texas. Um got targeted in August and Elm Fork showed up uh, to defend it. Um, and basically ever since then, it's every time, you know, the the PTK and the right and the, the usual suspects come out to, to do a drag show, like Elm Fork is there, they show up early, they're prepared, they're just very coordinated. Um, they're a left-wing, very, very pro-gun rights group uh, and yeah, I mean, I, I will say uh, for their part, I've never seen that level of coordination, um, you know, as an organizer or journalist, I have never seen, you know, that they have really great operational security. Um, you know, you, you can't, it's hard, it's hard to, to get an interview with them. Like they're, you know what I mean? They have, they have great, great OPSEC. Um, and that's for a reason they are protecting themselves. They are being targeted by PTK, um, Kelly Nider. They, there's a doxing war going on where she, you know, that that's an active effort where they're trying to like uncover who they are and dox them. You know, they, they wear masks. Like they never, they try to protect their identities as much as they can. When they were there in Princeton, um, the organizer of the drag event there told me he got a lot of pushback because of their presence, because, you know, conservatives don't like the people dressed in black in masks being there, that makes them very uncomfortable. We've been talking with Candace Burnt, senior editor with Truthout. Uh, her new article is Armed Community Groups Are Defending Texas Drag Queens from Christian Fascists. Uh, you know, Bob and I are both from Texas and definitely um, have great interest in, in stories like this. Um, and so we'll probably be having more in the future. Um, if you like what you're hearing, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. If you want to make a donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the support button or go to our Patreon at patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast. Um, we're also now part of the uh, Labor Podcast Network. Uh, big shout out to them and also uh, check them out because they're great. Welcome to Liquid Labor, your award-winning weekly source for conversations on issues, concerns, and achievements of working Americans. I'm David McClure. I'm Ron Miz. And I'm Barry Powell. Lunch with Labor is a weekly program brought to you by David McClure, Barry Powell, Brian Hope, and Ronald Mears, producing conjunction with our friends here at WOLB. All right? Yeah, so let's welcome Miss Valerie Watson-Johnson, better known as the Cake Lady. Welcome to Lunch with Labor. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes, How you doing? Hey, uh, hey, All uh, is well. 
Great, great. I, I want y'all to know that the cake lady, when I say she makes the best cakes, I've, I've, I've actually gotten some myself. And uh, I'm going to tell you something. Uh, it will turn your six-pack into a 40-ounce, but it's good. <laughs> it is good, you know. So uh, I'm going to tell you. Ms. Valerie, listen, won't you let our listeners know um, about your cake and how they can make contact with you? Right. Well, I have a variety of things, David, uh, that I do, but the lemon pound cake is my specialty. It's my biggest seller. I also do zucchini bread, cupcakes, brownies, blueberry muffins, yellow cake with chocolate and or vanilla frosting, sweet potato pie, banana pudding, red velvet cake, cookies, chocolate chip with or without nuts, oatmeal, raisin, peanut butter. And all of it is by scratch. I do all my cooking in my kitchen, made with love, due the help of the good Lord. I'm, I'm not professionally trained. I just do it with the help of the Lord. It's something that I like doing. I like to see the smiles on my customers' faces, and they come back, and they tell me, oh, my God, Miss Val, you done made me break my diet or whatever the case may be. But it's all <laughs> in love and fun. I just enjoy what I do and, and thankful for the support of my husband and my beautiful stylist that keeps my hair on sleek when I'm out and about <laughs> for David. And That's my right. Hayden, she was my little manager before she started her high school journey. But all is well. I just thank everybody that has supported and continue to support me. It's so, so nice to be nice. It really is. It pays off at the end. That's right. Ms. Bell, anything else you want the listeners to know? No, I just want the listeners to know that if you believe it, you can achieve it. And I'm trying to be the next Martha Stewart or Paula Dean, but right here in the heart of Baltimore City. All right. But I want to thank you so much for it. And uh, Baltimore, Let's show some support and, and let's go and, and, and give the love that is necessary because she simply put her foot in these cakes. So, Ms. Val, thank you again. We hope you'll tune in next week for another lively conversation about the issues, concerns, and achievements of working Americans. Award-winning Lunch with Labor is brought to you at noon every Tuesday by David McCraw, past president and business agent of ATU Local 1300, and our friends here at WOLB, where we drive... So you don't have to. Have a great week, everyone. From the UCLA Labor Center, this is Rework. I'm Sabah Wahid. And I'm Vina Hampapur. Today's episode might sound a little different. We pull on excerpts from an oral history interview with Antoinette Yvonne de Campo Lechtenberg. It's a part of a community archive and research initiative called Watsonville is in the Heart, which highlights the stories of Filipino families from the greater Pajaro Valley region in California. Antoinette paints a picture for us of growing up in a rural farming community in the 1960s and 70s. Watsonville is located about an hour and a half south of San Francisco near Monterey County. It's a primarily farming community that really erupted during the 1920s and 1930s when agriculture started to flourish in the area. 
The Filipino community also came in the 1920s to work as primarily agricultural workers for very cheap. It's kind of hard to be first generation. Philippines is a long ways away, right? A lot of people don't understand the hardships that they did go through. I mean, they were paid pennies, pennies to work and lived in terrible living situations. My father left the Philippines, was 17. As he says, I packed my two pairs of pants, my two shirts, and my money, and he stowed away on the boat. And he came to San Francisco. So Filipino migrants that came in the 1920s and 1930s worked up and down the Pacific seaboard in California, Oregon, and Seattle following the seasonal crops. During the time of Japanese incarceration during World War II, many other Asian ethnic groups were perceived to be also Japanese and were also wrongfully incarcerated. Antoinette believes that somebody thought that her father, Skippy, was Japanese, and so he was sent into the incarceration camp. My father didn't have his papers, and he was in an internment camp. And he lost everything at that time. He didn't really talk a lot about that time. So I have a lot of holes about where he went. But in the late part of his life, he told us stories about being there. And he was treated a little bit better because whoever was in charge realized he really wasn't Japanese. Skippy passed his work ethic on to his children. Antoinette and her sister were involved in farm work and helped out wherever it was needed. The reason why they were so involved in the farms is because they didn't have an older brother. You know, a lot of like the gendered labor fell upon them. Learning to drive tractors or growing up in folding boxes, I think shows that they were trying to navigate between this kind of class and gendered boundaries within the Pahara Valley. We were up at dawn and outside working, picking whatever we were growing at the time. We had to pick everything and do it right. Come home from school, you went out in the field and you worked because it was necessary. And we worked every summer, you know, I mean, you pick until lunchtime, you stop, take a break. And if you got to be the lucky one, go in and make that pot of rice at night before everybody else came in, then you got to quit a little bit earlier. So my sister and I learned how to cook rice by the time we were like seven, eight. <laughs> no rice cooker, a pot. When we got older and we got our work permits, we went to other farms. It was agriculture around us. So there were like blackberry fields and we would work at the orchards, picking up windfall, apples. Antoinette believes that the physical labor that he endured throughout his life is what ended up causing a lot of these physical ailments later on as an elderly man, that his exposure to pesticides and other chemicals during the growing process perhaps might have caused his physical decay. The work, the type of labor, the fact that he was working multiple jobs at the same time caught up with him. When my father passed away, I moved out there to help my mom maintain the ranch. But then I got sick and I couldn't help maintain the ranch. 
my mother sold the property to my brother and my sister. I've made peace with it because I live a mile away from all my memories. I drive through these fields I've been through all my life. I drive through and look at the black dirt. I remember the pristine valley with the beautiful orchards and the strawberry fields and the bean fields. And now it's all hoop houses and plastic. I know that it's good for the farmers, but I also know that through the pesticides and this transition, a lot of us got sick. I know that a lot of our fathers suffered from being directly underneath these poisons and the sprayers. And, you know, we as kids used to chase the plane that was crop dusting. You know, my sister and I had a bedroom on the other side of the wall of the storage room that held poison. But, you know, you can't hold that against your parents because they didn't know. A special thanks to Antoinette Yvonne Diacampo-Lechtenberg for sharing her story. And thanks to all of those involved in the Watsonville's in the Heart Project. To learn more about this community archive and research initiative, and to hear Antoinette's full interview, please visit wiith.ucsc.edu. Until next time, rethink, rework. And that's it for this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's our roundup of highlights from just a few of the more than 150 labor radio shows and podcasts that make up the Labor Radio Podcast Network. We've got links to the entire shows you heard today in the show notes, and you'll find all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast was Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Labor Radio Net. Find out more on our website, laborradionetwork.org. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock. Stay active and stay tuned to your local labor radio podcast show.